Heavenly Father, we thank thee for this evening. We thank thee for this time that we can gather together, that we can study thy word and benefit from it. Lord, we know that thy word does not return void, and we ask for thy blessing upon it tonight. We pray that thou wouldst help us in our hearts and in our minds to understand this scripture, that thou wouldst help me to preach it, to explain it, that thy people may be benefited by it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hello, so welcome to the Bible study, Friday night Bible study. We're in Hosea chapter 11. And in Hosea so far, we have seen is a book mostly detailing Israel's unfaithfulness, for the most part, and their whoredoms and their harlotry in the midst of great prosperity. We've also seen God's faithfulness in Hosea. And that prosperity would be taken from Israel swiftly, as we have read so far. And the prophet has continuously warned them This book is not just about Israel's sin. It is also about God's covenant faithfulness. And though it seems that the prophet harps on sin chapter after chapter, it is important that we see that there is a reason for these warnings and that it is actually, God's faithfulness is actually highlighted in these warnings, in these warnings and his judgments. God shows his love and his faithfulness to Israel by his judgment and mercy. In chapter 11, there are two major ideas. The first is that Israel has rejected God, and God gives hope of a time of restoration. Despite Israel being as unfaithful as they could possibly be, they quite literally chased after every idol, every worldly thing. They sacrificed upon every altar they possibly could. And despite them doing this, God reminds them in chapter 11 of all of his mighty works that he has done. All of his mighty works. The free love of God is spurned, rejected by Israel. And despite God being faithful to Israel year after year, they are ungrateful of these mighty works and they neglect the teaching of God and they neglect God. And so though this is the case, God is not done with Israel. He's not done redeeming. He's not done saving. There's still a story left to be told. There's still a savior that is yet to come. And in chapter 11, we start in verse 1. It reads, give you a second to turn there. We're in Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1. When Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. Two notes on the first verse. God loves Israel. When Israel was a child, then I loved him. It does not say, when Israel was a child, they loved me. And it highlights that that God's love for Israel is 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 facing Israel from God. God condescends to Israel and loves them. God's love is electing, in other words. It comes from God to man. And the second point is that God delivers Israel out of Egypt. He points back to a a giant representation of his love 
for Israel, when he acted upon his love and delivers them out of Egypt. In verse 1, there's a reason and an action. I loved and I called out. I loved and I called out. This reference to the Exodus is an appeal to God's electing love and the evidence of that electing love. In the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 2, verse 15, the New Testament uses this verse to compare God's delivery out of Israel out of Egypt to God's delivery of Jesus out of the hands of Herod. And in both, God preserves his plan to redeem a people unto himself. In some uh, more critical commentaries, some would have you believe that the New Testament authors are torturing the text by, by referring back to this in Matthew chapter 2. Yet, We believe in the Holy Spirit, and God does not lie. We have every right, even an obligation, to take the interpretation of the New Testament authors as God's interpretation of the Old Testament. To believe that the apostolic interpretation of the Old Testament is God's interpretation. The text is saying in Matthew that what the redemption accomplished in Christ is the very redemption God has purposed to accomplish from the beginning. He has purposed to accomplish this redemption from the beginning. And God's people who were brought out of the bondage of Egyptian captivity would be brought out of the bondage of sin and death by Christ. God's electing love could not be thwarted by the unfaithful Israel and could not be thwarted by the wicked devices of Herod who slew all the children. God's purposes would not be thwarted by man. A great darkness had befallen Israel in the time of Hosea. And though they were quite prosperous, a great darkness of sin had covered them. Like the darkness of the mothers weeping for their slain children in Matthew, and out of that darkness would emerge the light of the world, would emerge the light of the world, Jesus Christ. Verse 2, As they called them, so they went from them. They sacrificed unto Belim, and burned incense to graven images. Verse 1 and verse 2 stand as an example of God's faithfulness in opposition to Israel's unfaithfulness. God had called Israel out of Egypt, and he called unto them the they in this this passage by the prophets, by the voice of his prophets. And how did Israel respond? They went away from them. They went away from them. This is exactly the wrong response. God delivered his people and had reminded them of that delivery by the constant shouting and trumpeting of prophets year after year after year. And had given them a law, even, to obey and to follow. And Israel, and every every time, every year, every generation, goes in the opposite direction of God's voice. So we must remember to neglect not what God has done in our hearts, in our minds. And in our lives. Dear church, like he delivered Israel out of Egypt, he delivered you out of the bondage of sin and death in Christ. So we must look upon that great miracle, that great miracle of our salvation, and let it be a reminder of God's work in your life, individually, God's work in your life, and motivate us to gratitude. And this is one of the major themes that I want us to take away from the text tonight that we can look back on the work that God has done in our lives and our salvation and be reminded of the joy and the gratitude that should be uh, birthed within us. And so when we're feeling dry and desperate and maybe we don't see God's plan in our life, we can look back to our salvation and say, this is the great work that he has done in me. 
and be encouraged. And this is what the prophet's doing. He's pointing back to to Egypt and saying, look at the God that delivered you out of Egypt. Remember that, Israel. Remember, he took you out of bondage. He delivered you. And that Egyptian exodus points to the exodus that we have in Christ out of sin and death. It points to our, our delivery from sin and death. Israel turned from God, and it says in the text, sacrificed unto Balaam and burned incense to graven images. And from this text, we need to be reminded that there is no safe middle ground between God's work and God's voice and the condition and lusts of our hearts. There is no mediating position. For in the absence of our attendance to the Christian faith, there is only idolatry. And some of these idolatries might be more or less severe, but they're all idolatry outside of what God says we are to do and to live by and to love and to cherish. And this is often how we get ourselves into deep seasons of sin. We start small with a small bit of idolatry. And we, we take that and we go after it and go after it and say, this is not that bad. You know, God can use this sin. I can redeem this part of culture. And that this is one of the more dangerous things that has become prevalent in the modern church is we're, we're redeeming pagan practices. We're bringing the, the pagan stuff into the church and we're redeeming it for Christ. You see this sort of thing happening in churches where they have big dance performances and even holy yoga during Sabbath service. Things of this nature. Where they take these ungodly things and they say, we're going to make them purposed unto Christianity. And sometimes we do that in our life. I'm going to play 20 hours of video games every two days unto God's glory. I'm going to do this thing or that thing unto God's glory. And really it's just an excuse to live like the world is living. So we have to remember that there's no middle ground between what God says and our idols. In the absence of our attendance to the Christian faith, there is only idolatry. And if we say, I will depart from the Lord only in this one little teeny place, we are not saying that this part of my life is neutral, as we often think. We think, oh, this is just a neutral thing in my life. This is just a neutral thing in my life. We are actually saying, I have committed this part of my life unto idols. And this is one of the chief means of grace and examination, is we look inward, compare our lives and our hearts to God's word, and say, what part of my life am I sacrificing unto idols, like Israel was doing here, as described by the prophet Hosea. And though we are not perfect at living holy unto God, this is something that many people become quite discouraged in. Well, I can't live perfectly, and therefore I'm not going to try at all. We can't fall into that trap. And so we are not perfectly living holy unto God. Our gratitude that we have of God's delivery of us must motivate us to turn from our idols, to remember God's electing love, his redemption accomplished and applied, which means you are not as the pagans, given over to your flesh, to live in it and die in it. You, dear believer, in Christ, are a people set apart unto God. And so the the gratefulness that flows from that should should motivate us to live unto him as best as we possibly can in every single moment of every single day. And so do not say with the stiff-necked people of Israel, take us back to Egypt. 
there is nothing that awaits you in Egypt, in your former life, in your former sins. And Israel, as we read in the whole Old Testament, often forgot that. And this was the source of much of their idol-making. Much of their idol-making is caused because they forget God's promises, and they forget what God has done in their life. And so they say, we must have a calf. We must have this idol. We must sacrifice to this thing. So today, the first major theme is remember the work of God in your salvation. Remember that joy upon your conversion. Remember that great freedom from your sin and from your idolatry. And be motivated and encouraged by that to carry on in all of your trials, all of your struggles, all of your ailments, whether they be physical or emotional or spiritual. Any trial you have, look back into the real work that Christ has done in you and be blessed and be encouraged. Verse 3. I taught a frame also to go, taking them by their arms, but they knew not that I healed them. Verse 3 is a callback in, in a certain sense to verse 1 when the scriptures say, I loved Israel as a child. He says, I taught Ephraim also to go. In other words, I taught them how to walk. He carries on and says, taking them by their arms. He, he acted as a loving father to them. Many of you in this room were quite literally here when our children, the young children at Agoras, were learning how to walk. And to a certain degree, they still are learning how to walk. Their legs still get tired. They can't traverse tough terrain yet. The the stairs are difficult for them. And when children learn how to walk, as a parent, you help them. Sometimes you have to pick them up off the ground when they fall constantly. You have to hold them by the arms and and as they, they, they totter along. And when you're developing your muscles in your legs as a child and developing the muscle memory of how to walk, sometimes your legs get tired and God and your parents take them up by the arms and carry them on their back or in their arms. This is the the tender, loving language that is used by the prophet Hosea here, that God was as Israel or was to Israel as a loving, tender father. He taught them how to walk, and then when they couldn't walk, he carried them. Just as I'm sure we have all seen happen in our lives to our own children and to our friends' children as they teeter-totter along, the loving affection of parents coming along and picking them up when their legs are tired, picking them up when they fall, and teaching them how to walk. This is tender, loving, paternal language. And what does Israel respond with? The text says, but they knew not that I had healed them. They knew not. The scriptures present the picture of a tender, loving father and a child who grows old and forgets all the times of loving instruction and support. The ungrateful son and the ungrateful daughter who leave the home, forget what their parents taught them, and come back and dishonor their parents. Dishonor their parents. And this is the language that is used here. And the prophet continues in verse 4. I drew them with cords of man, with bands of love, and I was to them as they that take off the yoke on their jaws. And I laid meat unto them. Here God says that he did not treat Israel as mere slaves or beasts or animals. He says with bands of love. He did not handle them simply as an ox or an ass, but as a father to a child with paternal discipline and not the cruelty of a taskmaster or a slave driver. Again, the prophet uses tender language here. I laid meat unto them. 
God has not put a heavy yoke upon them and has even spoon-fed them as a parent to a child. Yet we see more tender, loving language. As a child is learning to eat, the parent literally feeds them food. They would not be able to get food on their own had the parent not fed them, and they would wither and die without parental affection and parental care and oversight. This is what God is saying. I instructed you. I taught you how to walk. I fed you. I put an easy yoke on you. I did not treat you as a slave. I did not treat you as a work beast. I was kind to you. And this says so much about the character of God, how long-suffering he is, how patient he is with Israel, how his love is tender to his children. It's not a cold love. It is an affectionate love. God's yoke is easy and his burden is light to his children. When we consider the electing love of God, we often only consider it in the context of our salvation. I know that I'm elect because I'm saved, right? Yet his love is tender in our chastisement, in our further education, when we make mistakes, when we're learning to walk, when we're learning to read, when we're learning to eat. He picks us up off the ground. He teaches us our letters. He spoon feeds us. And so as we go in this life, sometimes it feels sort of like a tottering child. We have to understand that some seasons are like that. And God does not chastise you for acting as a child. He chastises you for acting as a heathen sinner who is not his child. So we have to remember that God's love is indeed tender in our sanctification. We will sin in our lives. And you, in your sin, will be disciplined. But God disciplines as a loving father and not a cruel taskmaster. In other words, his instruction and his discipline is always in your best interest as God's child. If you're in Christ, his discipline will always refine you. It will always bring you closer to him. It will always be in your best interest, even though it may not seem like it in the moment. It may seem very arduous, and it may seem very cruel to you because your heart is in the wrong place as you're being disciplined. You wanted that next thing. You wanted that thing that the the scriptures say you shouldn't want. You went after the idols. You went after the altars. You put strange fire on the altar of God. And instead of completely cutting you off, God disciplines you to bring you back. And for the elect, this is the case. It is always with the intention of restoration, even though at times it is painful, even though at times it is difficult. It will try you in your flesh. And yet it is refining, and yet it is so sweet. When you come out of that valley, when you come out of that dark shadow over your life, and the light of the gospel shines on it, and the tender discipline of the Father comes down on your back as a rod, and you come out stronger and refined. And so what does this discipline look like? What does godly discipline look like? Well, the first thing, it pulls you away from your idols. Think about what God is doing in Hosea. He's sending Assyria to come and take Israel back into captivity so that they'll remember their feasts and lament. They'll remember all the worship they can't do. There will be thorns and thistles growing upon their altars and in their temples. And they'll look back at that time of prosperity and say, wow, we we squandered that time. We were selfish. We were prideful. And godly discipline will pull you away from your idols sometimes quite dramatically. But they will always draw you to God. 
And by the power of the Holy Spirit, they will work up that conviction in your heart, that longing for the love of your youth, remembering the joy of your salvation. Now, there is an important distinction between the natural consequences of sin and the discipline of God. The natural consequences of sin are the things like if you steal something from someone, you'll get a fine or get arrested. If you murder someone, you'll be arrested and either put to death in some states or go to jail. If you, if you are crass and rude and mean or, or jerkish to your wife or to your friends, the natural consequence of that is that you're hurting your trust between the two parties. These are natural consequences of sin. Now, God's discipline pulls at your heart. It strikes at your sinful affections and it will draw you away from the evil thing that you are partaking in. And sometimes, it le- by letting you bathe in the mud for a little while, eat with the pigs, live in squalor. And God uses the natural consequences of sin in our lives, things which happen as a result of anybody's sin, to discipline us and to get our attention. To get our attention. And this is the difference between the person that is regenerate and the person that is not regenerate. There is no spiritual benefit to natural consequences of sin in an unregenerate man's heart. There's none. There is no spiritual benefit to that. However, according to the Spirit, when we face the natural consequences of sin, we feel the conviction of that sin, we look back at the prosperity in our lives, like the Israelites were about to do, And we lament over the time we squandered and we return to God. And he uses these natural consequences of sin to bring us back. But the real discipline is not the consequence of your sin. The real real discipline is the conviction worked in your heart upon seeing your sin. The godly sorrow, not worldly sorrow. Normal people feel worldly sorrow over the consequences of sin. I'm sorry I got caught. That is not discipline. That is guilt. That's just simple guilt. Godly sorrow. And God will take blessings for the purpose of this. Like Israel being taken into captivity by the Assyrians. And if you only let God's discipline modify your behavior, it will do nothing for you. It must modify your heart. And you are missing out on the most important component of godly discipline. Restoration and closeness with God. And so we're about to see God scatter Israel. And many of them will not return. However, there is a remnant. There is a remnant left of Israel. We must remember that God has a purpose in his discipline always. He has a purpose, a redemptive purpose. And and what he's doing, and especially here in Hosea, that we're seeing the restoration and closeness with God. Verse 5. He shall not return into the land of Egypt, but the Assyrian shall be his king because they refuse to return. Here we see an explicit connection between between Egypt and Assyria. Assyria would be, to Israel, what Egypt was. It will be captivity. It will be separation. It will be cutting off. And this is made explicit in verse 5. Because they chose other kings, other gods, Assyria shall be their king. Israel had refused the gentle yoke of God 
And now they will feel the cruelty of Assyrian taskmasters. They will feel the cruelty of Assyrian taskmasters. Verse 6. And the sword shall abide on his cities and shall consume his branches and devour them because of their own counsels. The idolatrous people of Israel could not comprehend the warnings of Hosea at this point. He's still going on. He's still saying, God is coming. God is judging you. He's going to use the Assyrians to do so. And yet Israel is not getting the message. He says, the sword shall abide on his cities. In in other words, it shall be apparent that God is judging you. It's going to be right before your face. There will be no doubt as to who is judging you and why he's doing it. This will not be a subtle judgment. The sword will be upon your cities. War will be upon you. Your judgment is not just a spiritual judgment. It will be quite physical, in fact. And you will be taken out of the land. A very physical judgment. It will be apparent, unmistakable, and total. The branches, some commentators write that this is talking about all the branches of cities, though believe the more accurate way to render this is the defenses that they had built up for themselves. The branches which would lock doors and the branches which would hold their gates together and the walls they had constructed. Essentially what the prophet is saying is that you have these walls, you have these doors, these gates, and all of these towers that you have built, these cities that you have constructed, these fortifications that you have set around yourselves, they will do nothing. They will do nothing to thwart what is about to happen to you. The gates and defenses that you have constructed shall be devoured. No fortification which Israel had made for themselves would be able to defend against God's judgment here. The confidence that Israel had in themselves would prove foolish. And the prophet's warning tells us that Israel was indeed resisting the cry of Hosea, saying, Our ways are sure. Look at what we've built. Who could come against us? God would come against them. God would come against them. But why? The end of the verse says, because of their own counsels. They thought themselves wise. They thought themselves judged. They sat on the high places, supposing to look down upon God as if they themselves had the authority to do so. When in fact, they should have let God look down on them, judge them. And I imagine the places of worship look quite small up in the high places. But God's judgment will not look small when he visits Israel in their time of judgment. Verse 7. And my people are bent to backsliding from me. Though they called them to the Most High, none at all would exalt him. Israel was determined to turn away from God. Uh, Some translations render this word turn away, backslide, but it essentially means to apostatize. Though the prophets, they, uh, they're referred to in Hosea, called Israel to repent and turn to God, none would honor Jehovah, none at all would exalt him, says in the scripture. What a great judgment it is to hear the word of God and reject it. Whether that be hearing the gospel presentation, those that the gospel is preached to that reject it, there is judgment upon them for that. And as Christians, when we hear the loving rebuke of a brother or sister in Christ, do not tarry long 
and that rebuke before returning to God. Do not tarry long in your sin. God is not like a dog with a loud bark and no bite. He is a mighty lion whose roar is loud and his bite is deadly. And Israel was not getting this idea. They were not putting this together. He is not a safe God. He is not a soft God. He is not a God shaped after the effeminate men of modernity. He is a quite dangerous God. He is quite dangerous. He is mighty and terrifying and awesome. The only comfort men should have in the fact that God is this terrifying is knowing that he is both just and the justifier. He is not just terrifying. And if you are not in Christ, not justified, there is no safe place on heaven, in heaven or on earth where you are safe from his judgment and his wrath. And this is why we are motivated to go out and preach the gospel to all men. Because people are walking around with this terrifying knowledge that we have of how mighty God is and the judgment that waits for every person that does not believe. There is no safe place outside of Christ. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteous men, Romans 1 says. And if you are in Christ, that mighty, awesome, terrifying God holds you in his hand, and there is no safer place than in the arms of God. There is no safer place in Christ. I recall back to the beginning of this Bible study. The idea that we can play with our idols. That is not a safe place to play. It would be like if we sent our children to play on the edge of a freeway. You would not call the parents who let their kid play on the edge of the freeway a loving parent, an attentive parent. And so when God gives us these warnings in his word, when we read the scriptures and he says, do this or don't do that, that is him saying, don't go play, play by the freeway. That is not a safe place for you to play. In fact, there are many dangers that await you on the freeway, dear child. You and Christ have this mighty, awesome God that holds you in his hand. And the safety that we seek outside of Christ is a safety that is most perilous, most dangerous. It is the most discomforting place you could possibly be. It will be as a heavy yoke to you, a cruel taskmaster, and a cold, indifferent lover. It will not care about you. It will not love you back. It will chew you up and spit you out. And Israel is seeing this here. They, they place their love and their hope in their kings and in their religion. They put their hope in their prosperity and all the, the grain and wine that they had. And God would dry up their grain, dry up their wine, and send an army to crush them. Why? Because God is jealous. And he will have fidelity. Verse 8. How shall I give thee up, Ephraim? How shall I deliver thee, Israel? How shall I make thee as Adma? How shall I see thee as Zeboim? Mine heart is turned within me. My repentings are kindled together. Again, the prophet points back to Israel's history. First to the Exodus, the beginning of the chapter, and now to Adma and Zeboim, allies of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
In Deuteronomy 29.23, it says, Like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and his wrath. Again, we see this, this pattern of the prophet pointing back into Israel's history and say, remember this. And this is a parallel of sorts. He starts out the chapter and says, remember God's redemption. Now he says, remember God's judgment. Remember God's redemption and remember God's judgment. And yet, God says, how shall I set thee a Zeboim? How shall I do this to thee? Mine heart is turned within me. The prophet is saying, Israel, you deserve this judgment as Sodom and Gomorrah. Your behavior has warranted this. You absolutely 100% deserve it. And so, and though Israel deserved the same fate as Adma, Zeboim, Sodom and Gomorrah, this would not be the final fate of Israel. Now, a point on this passage, this uses a lot of anthropomorphic language. And though I know that everyone in this room understands that, that the Lord uses anthropomorphisms, we still, it should still be helpful to point out that there is no change in God. God does not move from one emotion to another, so he's employing language that we can understand. Call it verbal condescension of sorts. He's using language that we can understand to fully grasp what's going on here. To fully understand in our own limited vocabulary, in our own frail emotions, exactly what is happening right here. There is no change in God. And so we take this passage as an obvious verbal condescension which God uses to explain himself in terms that we can understand. That really affect our heart and get to us and drive home the understanding. We know that not only is there no change in God, there is no change in the heart of God. He is saying Though you, Israel, deserve the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah, I will not give you what you deserve. And what do we call that? Grace and mercy. Grace and mercy. And he would show mercy and grace for his redemptive purpose, for his glory, because of his electing love. He uses anthropomorphic language to condescend to us. This is, this is a very important way that the scriptures speak to us as humans from the mouth of God. Verse 9. I will not execute the fierceness of mine anger. I will not return to destroy a frame. For I am God and not man, the Holy One in the midst of thee, and I will not enter into the city. Here the prophet communicates language of restraint. I will not enter into the city. I will not execute. Why? Because there was yet a faithful remnant. There was still yet a redemptive purpose. 1 Kings 19.18 says, Yet I have left me 7,000 in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal. There was still a faithful remnant, and this faithful remnant, remnant would see their way all the way up to becoming Christ. God would judge Israel, cut off their king, set them into exile, but he would not wholly destroy them like he did with Sodom and Gomorrah. For there was still hope. There was still hope promised. A hope that goes back to eternity into the fall. We're going to take verses 10 and 11 together here. They shall walk after the Lord. He shall roar like a lion. When he shall roar, then the children shall tremble from the west. They shall tremble as a bird out of Egypt. 
and as a dove out of the land of Assyria. And I will place them in their houses, saith the Lord. Though his judgment would indeed be severe on Israel here, it would not be absolute in the sense that he's going to destroy all of them. There would be a remnant. There would be a remnant. The people of God, they, the scriptures say here, would walk after Jehovah. And they would have God as their leader, a lion. And the lion would draw them with his roar and send with this roar their enemies scattering. There would be no person either in Egypt or Assyria that could prevent God from doing this, from drawing his people back. Neither Egypt nor Assyria could thwart God's purpose to return his people back, saith the Lord. And finally, verse 12. A frame compasseth me about with lies, and the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah yet ruleth with God, and is faithful with the saints. The prophet here makes a distinction between Israel and Judah. While Ephraim had, it says, compasseth me about with lies, Judah yet ruleth with God, and is faithful with the saints. The ten tribes of Israel were totally committed to idolatry, yet Judah and Benjamin, it says here, in the south were not. There was yet a remnant. There was yet a faithful people. And we believe this. In every generation, there is a faithful remnant of believers until the last day. Completely continuous with God's redemptive purpose. Now, some commentators say that, that, the, that chapter 12 should have started in verse, or chapter 12 should have, should have started in verse 12 here because it runs directly into chapter 12 and it, it flows quite nicely. But we're going to pick up in chapter 12 next week. But before we go tonight, I have a couple of points of application that I would encourage you to meditate upon as we go into the Lord's Day. The first is that this section of scripture should remind us to remember often the work of God in our salvation. To remember often the work of God in our salvation. Like Israel's delivery out of Egypt. The same way that the prophet Hosea points back to Egypt and says, remember that. Remember your delivery out. Remember your delivery into the land. Remember the blessing. Remember when you were a child when God loved you. And we need to, in many seasons in our life, remember that very thing. We become theologically mature and we, we, we forget the joy of that first fruit of our salvation. The joy of our youth. And we sit here all dried up and, and maybe we've justified and said, well, I'm too mature for that kind of stuff. I'm too mature to look back on the joy of my salvation. I have more important things to study now, like divine simplicity, or whatever, pick your, pick your lofty theological topic. And we forget that the Lord calls us to remember that initial work of salvation, and even the continuing work, to remember that if he did that initial work in you, he's going to continue doing that work in you until you die and your bodies are glorified. We can even look into that. There may be a powerful season of your life that might not have been the first season of your Christian walk that you can look to and say, I remember that season. I remember what the Lord was doing me in that season. Remember that fire. Remember that faithfulness. Remember that spark that was in you that that caused you to go out and preach the gospel and reject your idols and put away your sin and love God more. The reason that you were so joyful in that season is because you were loving God. 
because you were listening to his voice, because you were in tune with what God was speaking to you. When we forget the cruelty of the taskmasters of our Egypt, we often lose sight of what we were delivered from. And so sometimes we turn back like Israel was prone to do and say, we want to go back to Egypt. Take us back. At least we had shelter there. At least we had food there. God says, no, I will provide the manna. I will provide the water. I will provide everything you need. Do not go back to Egypt. There is only a cruel taskmaster waiting for you there. A cold, indifferent lover. The second is that we should be motivated to gratitude for this delivery. Noticing God's provision, grace, and power in salvation. His provision, grace, and power in our salvation. So when we look back to our either the first fruits of our salvation or perhaps a, a zealous season, we look at what God was doing in that season, not what we were doing. You might have had plenty of mighty works. You might have gone out and preached to all sorts of people. You might have done all sorts of charity and fasted for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. That's not what you're looking at. Look at how God sustained you in that season. Because I'm sure there were hard things in that season too. That God was carrying you through. Whether it be physical ailments, spiritual ailments, emotional ailments, tension between your family and friends. Look back to those seasons and see what God was doing in your life. And remember that he is still doing that in your life. He is still doing that in your life. And third and finally, we should be reminded that God's love is tender, fatherly, and in our best interest to his children. And so when we are disciplined by the Lord, we ought to view it as a blessing. And though the rod hurts on our back when it comes down, We need to know that it is for our benefit. It is for our edification. It is for our godliness, for our setting apart from the world. And God is jealous and he will discipline you. And when you are disciplined, don't just let it be moral behavior modification. Let it truly wreck your heart, wreck your conscience. Be grieved over your sin. Let God work in you in your discipline. Don't just say, oh, someone caught me in my behavior. I better fix that so no one notices again. That is not how godly discipline works. That's worldly sorrow. I got caught. Godly sorrow produces joy. And it is given to us by God. So those three things. Oh, and finally, we should be motivated by this. To live as set-apart people called out by God unto all things. There's not a single part of your life that is too much given to God. And though sometimes we convince ourselves, you know, I read this much or I did these amazing things, I gave this much, whatever it might be, whatever the thing is, those are great things, great and godly things. But know that there's always more. The well of Jesus Christ is deeper. You can always go deeper into your faith. You can always give more of your heart to God more of your life to God. Live more set apart unto God and be a greater witness, ambassador for him on this earth. And in that, living as a set apart person, there is joy, there is comfort, 
There is an abundance of wealth in Jesus Christ. So as we go from this place and head into the Lord's day, let us contemplate the beauty of what Christ has done for us, how he has called us out of Egypt, the bondage of death and sin he has set us free from and made us alive in Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank thee for thy salvation. We ask as we go into the Lord's day that thou wouldst work within us gratitude, that we might remember thy works in our life, and that we may be moved unto gratitude to love thee more, to cherish thee more, and to live as a set-apart people unto thee more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for coming. You are dismissed.